Happy Friday to you all. It's Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs for one more day. Mike will be back on Monday. You can hear him call the London Knights game tonight. The Knights are home to the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. Knights beat the Niagara Ice Dogs 5-4 in overtime last night to win their first game in 2019. They've even made a trade uh, today, so we'll have uh, all the uh, details on that on 980CFPL throughout the afternoon. You can hear tonight's game on 980CFPL starting at 6.30 with the pregame. Puck drop will be at 7.30. On today's show, we've got a busy program. Lots of variety on the show today. We'll be talking about space in Ultima Thule, something I've been very interested by uh, to start today. That'll be in a few moments. We'll talk about distracted driving before the half hour is out with Brian Patterson from the Ontario Safety League. We'll talk about the proposed mega dump in Oxford County with Brian Smith. He's the president of a citizens group opposed to the landfill. And I want to tackle the Louis C.K. controversy. We'll also end the program with a mini roundtable where we will make uh, some predictions for 2019. Roger Currency and Nathan Currency will be by for that. Up first, Ultima Thule. I think this is really cool. The New Horizons spacecraft uh, did a uh, flyby of this object on New Year's and is now more than 4 billion miles away from Earth. Flew by Pluto uh, three years ago, and it's now more than a billion miles away from Pluto. In terms of kilometers, it's 6.4 billion kilometers from Earth. It's incredible that we can send an object so far away and still communicate with it as we are starting to get uh, pictures and new data uh, from it. It's really incredible. Ultima Thule, as we are now learning, kind of looks like a snowman. At a news conference uh, yesterday, scientists and others put on 3D glasses to see this city-sized, two-sphered cosmic body in stereo, revealing uh, possible curved edges. Uh, Mark Showalter of the City Institute in Mountain View, California, said he expects within weeks or months, once better images arrive, whether it has any tiny moons or faint narrow rings. He suspects there might be at least a couple moons a few kilometers out. The data covering that area is still aboard the spacecraft. And one of the many things that's cool about this is it's so far away, it's believed that many of the objects untouched in this region are untouched since the creation of our solar system. So it's hoped that maybe, just maybe, we can learn some secrets about our creation. To talk about this, we are joined by Dr. Gordon Ozinski from Western University. He's the acting director of the Center for Planetary Science and Exploration. Thanks for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome, Devin. Uh, New Horizons is something that, you know, wasn't top of mind for me for a while, and then I started to see some stories just before New Year's, and certainly a ton after New Year's as we got a whole bunch of data that came back. Uh, this all began 13 years, like 2006, right? Correct, yeah. It's almost, uh, yeah, January 19th, 2006 is when the New Horizons uh, mission began with the launch of the spacecraft. So, you know, it's taken an incredibly long time to get to this part of the solar system. Um, and, of course, you know, a few years ago, uh, it was in the news a lot uh, with it sending back the first detailed images of Pluto. And now, as you say, we uh, we're, it's back in the news again after traveling, you know, another few million uh, kilometers uh, with looking at this body called 2014 MU69, or how uh, it's being more commonly nicknamed uh, Ultima Thule. It's... Uh, it's... 
I, I've seen a lot of American. I, I'm, I don't normally talk in miles as opposed to kilometers. Uh, it's like four billion miles from Earth, and even from Pluto, it's like a billion miles, which just kind of I think uh, gives a bit of an idea of just how far away uh, the the spacecraft is at this point. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you know for for Canadians, it's 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 along the lines of almost six and a half billion kilometers from Earth <laughs> as this uh, object that we just visited. So you know it is the the most distant object um, a human built uh, robot has ever visited. You know, so that's pretty staggering, um, and that explains you know why it's taken uh, as you say kind of thirteen years to get there. Um, and, you know, another staggering uh, statistic that, uh, you know, I was just reading about, too, is that, you know, because so the spacecraft is now traveling very fast because it's, you know, it's essentially speeding up uh, as it goes further and further out. And so it was capturing all of this data of uh, Ultima Thule at uh, a speed of 14 kilometers a second. You know, so if you can imagine the uh, the engineering feat of, you know, focusing on an object that is more or less stationary compared to you and flying by 14 kilometers a second, you know, it's just, uh, it's mind-blowing. Well, that, and I, I read, too, at a certain point, it was, you know, up to the spacecraft itself to make some, you know, alterations. I mean, uh, the engineers uh, and, and could only do so much once it, once it got to a certain point. So the fact that it's still operational is is a feat in itself. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it just goes to show, um, you know, that when you design things for space, you're really pushing the boundaries of innovation and uh, having to come up with, uh, you know, new approaches to doing things. Um, and as you say, yeah, we can't, they can't control the spacecraft in real time because it's so far away. You know, even on Mars that we uh, talk about uh, quite often on this show, um, you know, Mars has a time delay of anything from 20 to 40 minutes. So people are designing, you know, or designing things to be more autonomous um, so that these robots can make some decisions on their own, essentially. The the spacecraft is in, a, in an area where it's so far away. I was reading, this was something that was really interesting to me, is it's in a part where we can maybe see some objects and maybe, uh, you know, Ultima Thule uh, is one of them, where it's almost untouched from the creation of the solar system just because it's so cold and, and it's so far uh, and the potential to learn some of our origins here, I guess, is is uh, is really great. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the big driving forces for the the overall New Horizons mission. Um, yeah, you know, Pluto was discovered, what uh, you know, not quite a hundred years ago in 1930, and people speculated at that time that it might not be alone. And so this actually gave a rise to this idea of this kind of third zone of the solar system. You know, we've got this, the rocky terrestrial planets in the inner solar system and then the gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn. And then with the discovery of Pluto, it led uh, scientists to speculate that, you know, there might be a third zone of potentially many more objects. Um, and it was uh, coined the name of the Kuiper Belt. And so we now know that there are likely, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of objects uh, in this zone that are predominantly probably icy, you know, maybe a few hundred to perhaps, you know, a couple of thousand kilometers in diameter. Um, and as you say, they're, they're ancient relics of the birth of the solar system, you know, likely rich in, in ice and carbon, you know, so the building blocks of life. Um, we think a lot of comets have arrived from this outer part of the solar system. 
They're also thought to be, you know, very rich in, in ices, volatiles, you know, water and uh, carbon. And so, you know, it's a really interesting mission from that perspective, as you say, to learn about uh, kind of untouched relics from the formation of our solar system four and a half billion years ago. Whether it's, you know, something like this or even, you know, Mars or the moon, like how do, what's that process like in terms of, we're obviously on Earth and we've got, you know, probes uh, doing information, relaying information back. How, like, what's that process like in terms of learning something new when we're on the ground and we're so far, like that, that just, you know, just what you, you think might be something and then, you know, confirming it is or it is, isn't, you know, what we suspect something might be. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's why, I mean, I'm. what makes planetary science and planetary geology so much fun is that, uh, you know, Mars is one thing. Mars and the Moon, they're, you know, somewhat Earth-like. We have a pretty good understanding of them, and we've had lots of missions. Um, but, you know, just look at what we've learned about uh, Pluto in the last kind of two, three years since the data returned from New Horizons. You know, until New Horizons reach Pluto, it's a fuzzy dot. Um, you know, Hubble Space Telescope had the best images of Pluto, and it was still pretty fuzzy. There was features on there um, that we had no idea what they are. But we now know that, you know, Pluto has impact craters, it has sand dunes, it has, it's a very active planet or dwarf planet, but it's, you know, made up of very unusual compounds to us. You know, there's nitrogen ices on Pluto, and so... On the one hand, there's processes that we're familiar with, but on the other hand, you know, there's materials that were totally, are totally alien and unfamiliar to us. So, you know, it's a challenge to interpret this data, but it's, uh, you know, makes it exciting too. And, you know, who knows what we'll get uh, when we look at all of the data. Um, you know, the first images of this object have been sent back already, but it's going to be, I think, you know, close to 20 months just because of how far it is away for all of that data from this flyby to come back to Earth. So, you know, who knows what we'll be learning in the next uh, year or two. It's an exciting time. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Devin. That's Dr. Gordon Ozinski from Western University. We need to pause when we return more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike will be back with you on Monday. I want to return to something we discussed on the program yesterday with former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner, and that's the new distracted driving laws. They started January 1st. Will they be effective? As a refresher, here's what came into effect. So those convicted of driving while distracted, including texting while behind the wheel, will have their license suspended for three days. First-time fines now range from between $615 to $1,000, up from the previous minimum of $490. Drivers will also be docked three demerit points for a first distracted driving offense. Brian Patterson is with the Ontario Safety League. I know he's in favor of these changes, but I'm curious about what he thinks the reaction from drivers will be, how fast they might change to some of these new rules and whether distracted driving is harder to cure than other bad habits. Brian joins us on the line now. Thanks for your time today. It's a busy day with the amount of snow that's been dropped today. 
It's uh, certainly uh, you know a busy time, I think, uh, for police with these new distracted uh, driving uh, penalties that came in uh, as of January 1st. Uh, are, are you hopeful that they will uh, have a, uh, a, an impact that will actually change behaviors on the road? Yeah, I think what we've, uh, what we've decided is that it's a good balance between uh, proper penalties uh, related to the risk that these drivers are putting other uh, uh, pedestrians, cyclists, and uh, uh, drivers at risk. So at the end of the day, it's balanced. And the last time we took this approach on the extreme driving legislation, the 50 kilometers over, we had 400 uh, less fatalities on the roadway. So I think it's the right approach, and I think by the end of the year, I'm optimistic that we're going to be able to uh, uh, not only change behavior with uh, some, but make a significant difference in the number of uh, uh, major crashes and fatalities we have on the roadway. There are a lot of dangerous things we do as motorists behind the wheel on the road. Uh, how does distracted driving maybe compare to some of the other issues that you have dealt with in your role? You know, obviously impaired driving is is quite serious. Speeding is, but it, distracted driving seems to be something that people like to uh, admonish others for doing, but uh, give themselves a pass. Oh, you'd be surprised how many drivers rate their driving ability at ten, and the rest of the drivers on the road at four. So uh, apparently the only people we have to retrain as drivers are already excellent drivers in their own mind. Uh, at the uh, end of the day, focusing on driving is the major issue. And in the last probably 10, th- 10 years, we've brought more things into the driver's range than ever before. So we've got music playing videos. We've got uh, 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 distraction from... Uh, GPS, we've got distraction from other drivers. We have people who put their cruise control on and then think that eases up their driving responsibility and they can do other things while they're driving. So they're not giving that 100% uh, uh, to driving. And, you know, we see fatalities almost every day where a few seconds of inattention can result in a significant crash. But uh, having been at the scene where uh, some young uh, kids were in a bad crash just the other day, it's only a matter of seconds. It can happen to anybody, young, old, experienced. If you're not 100% focused, you're going to be in trouble. Is this habit more difficult to, to change than maybe some others behind the wheel, do you think, or, or can you really compare them all? Well, the 15 years I've been at the Safety League, I think this is the one that uh, technology had uh, uh, had brought in to the forefront again and again, and I and I think the uh, uh, the the people who uh, make money off of cell phone use have uh, simply ignored the risk and continued to make it more and more and more and more available. Um, uh, the people, uh, the OPP, and the uh, uh, municipal police are pulling people over, and they're live streaming the news that night because he didn't get home in time to see it. It's uh, and To me, it's just unworkable. Uh, it's completely preventable. And we now have penalties that are in keeping with it, uh, uh, the nature of it. If you're an employer, your, uh, your dispatch and reporting model better not be calling your uh, people on the road whenever you feel like it and uh, getting them to deal with complicated instructions. 
Should tech companies be more involved in in this since uh, they've uh, really uh, created a lot? Of, they've they've made some of these devices, in particular, like you know, iPhones and Android, ever whatever, so addictive that sometimes people just really can't put them down. I'm really optimistic that this uh, millennial uh, group will uh, use their broad understanding of uh, technology to come up with solutions. There's already the very, very start where you can set your phone, they will send a message, I'm driving, uh, and you deal with it later, etc. But, uh, but I really do. I think it's going to be some, uh, and I hope they make a lot of money. Some uh, uh, 25-year-old is going to figure this uh, out, uh, create uh, software across the network, and uh, I hope they get a buck a driver because every one of those dollars will be coming from people who are going to be safer and less risky for the rest of the public. I, I talk to a lot of people who say, you know, uh, you know, automated vehicles are going to be the what solves this all, impaired driving, uh, distracted, speeding, everything. And maybe that's true, but also we can't wait uh, for that technology to be perfected to the point where lots of people can use it. We need to be doing something now. Well, I, I turned 60 in three weeks, and I'll be driving a car until I stop uh, being able to. I have a neighbor with a Model T in his garage who drives it every summer. So I don't think this uh, uh, immediate switch to autonomous cars is going to uh, be the answer. So uh, unless you believe the Jetsons was right, uh, uh, we won't be flying from pod to pod and uh, driving in our autonomous cars. It may make a difference, but there's an awful lot of infrastructure that's required and Anybody from the greater Toronto area knows that uh, changing infrastructure is a decade-long task in this community. With respect to the uh, new uh, laws and the new penalties that started uh, as of January 1st, you know, the, the first penalty with, you know, a maximum fine of $1,000, three demerit points, you, you lose uh, your license uh, suspended for three days. That's pretty significant. The, the financial aspect of this do you think that is really the deterrent for for a lot of people? In that you know, it's you know, a thousand dollars is a thousand dollars. Well, an awful lot of responsible uh, drivers are going to say, "Well, I heard there was a big fine, so I think I'm just not going to risk ever getting that fine." And they're the ones that are going to adopt the better practice. Uh, those who think, "Well, you know, I uh, uh, I'm just unfortunate that I got caught." You better pray you don't get caught, unfortunately, again in a, uh, a two-year period or there are uh, significant consequences. Companies will soon find out that drivers who have these tickets on their uh, licenses may be less available for uh, corporate uh, driver insurance and, of course, uh, uh, might, uh, might raise the rates for the overall company. So at the end of the day, uh, adopt your pra- best practice now. If you're listening to this, the next time you get in your vehicle, put your phone in your glove box, put it in the back seat. Uh, 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 you'll only have Bluetooth available, and uh, uh, get to where you have to go. And do not allow the general manufacturer psyche. For some people, it's like going into a casino. The phone and the ability to continually update Facebook and check to see how many cat videos you've got is overwhelming. And when you crash into the vehicle in front of you or 
a pedestrian trying to cross the street or a cyclist, you, you realize, was that cat video that important? Uh, finally, you mentioned earlier just how quickly you saw a response with uh, the over 50 when that came in. Do you think we could see a similar, like a quick response where we actually see uh, maybe there'll be a turnaround uh, for this as well? Uh, I think the statistics at the end of the year will show uh, a very positive change, and uh, I'm confident that uh, during that year we're going to hear a lot of positive discussion and we're going to hear a lot of, uh, about new ideas and concepts. So at the end of the day, um, or at the end of the year, uh, I think it will have a dramatic impact on uh, uh, fatalities and uh, collisions. Brian, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good time and stay safe in London. That's Brian Patterson from the Ontario Safety League. We need to pause when we return more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. Mike will be back with you on Monday. I want to look outside London's borders, but not go too far. We'll talk about the uh, massive landfill that is uh, planned for Oxford County. The mega dump is being planned for an old limestone quarry, and if it goes ahead, would eventually receive up to 17 million tons of non-hazardous commercial and industrial waste over a two-decade span. The landfill, which would be very close to the Thames River, would be about 10 times the size of the landfill that currently accepts London's garbage. The project has received stiff opposition from residents in the area. This has been a years-long effort. Recently, a survey was sent out about the plan, not the first survey, but the latest. And like the plan itself, it has sparked a degree of controversy. To talk about this, we are joined by Brian Smith. He is the president of the citizens group that opposes this, OPEL. OPEL stands for Oxford People Against the Landfill. Brian, thanks for your time today. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Devin. Before we uh, we talk about the survey, I just want to rewind just a little bit, talk about the proposed dump itself, just for some of the listeners who may not be as acquainted with this uh, situation as you are. Where do things stand right now? So the proposal to put 17.4 million tons of trash into the groundwater and beside the Thames River is in the environmental assessment process, um, which we are told will be wrapping up. Um, in May, and then we'll go to the ministry for ministry officials to consider and recommend to the minister what um, Rod Phillips, who's the minister, should do. Should he say yes or no, or should he say something else? This has uh, been something that's been around for a couple years now, right? A couple's more like seven. <laughs> it's, it's a long, long grind, although I'm told by groups who do this elsewhere in the province who, you know, defend their community from various kinds of challenges, that you look at a decade to 12 years as the basic run of one of these battles. What are some of the concerns? I mean, you, you kind of outlined some of them when you were just describing the project yourself, but what are some of the concerns you have with the landfill? Um, well, the, there's multiples. Um, 
you could start with the notion that um, of producer responsibility, um, that if somebody's going to create a lot of trash, maybe they should be dealing with it themselves rather than foisting it off on another community. And that's part of a whole move by a lot of rural communities to protect themselves through um, uh, demand the right to make those decisions. In terms of the technicalities of what a dump does, We've looked at two rounds of federal science, which is the way you do science well, as you check it a second time. Um, and they tell us that all dump liners leak, so it means that some of the contents that end up in the liner will end up in the groundwater, because the dump is proposed to be in a quarry that's below water level. Um, so that means that things that get into dumps will, um, in fact, end up in your drinking water. Um, and that's a very dangerous thing, um, and I know that people don't intend to do it, but those curly-cued CFL bulbs contain mercury, and if they end up in the garbage, that ends up in drinking water, and that's highly toxic to people, and batteries out of all sorts of devices. Um, people don't always get them to the right place. Please, no shows of hands on who hasn't done this, and throw them in their garbage bag. That produces toxins in the ground. The mix of industrial, commercial, institutional, and residential trash that would go in the dump under the proposal that we're looking at is highly, highly um, uh, dangerous to us because of those risks of things being in them. We're concerned about the over 170 trucks that would come in and then return, so over 340 truck trips um, per day of um, tractor-trailer trucks unloading garbage into the area, putting huge pressures on a road that's already very busy. So it's actually County Road 6, which leads from the 401 up to Stratford, a very busy road with truck traffic and cars on it, um, and a couple of quite dicey intersections on it. Um, so we're concerned about that. We're concerned about what happens when you put that many more trucks on the road in terms of diesel fumes and the fine particulate matter that bypasses your sinuses, gets in your lungs, goes through your lung tissue, and results in lung disease and cardiac disease. Um, we're more than a little concerned about um, the cover soil they'll put on it, cover soil being a word that covers um, polluted soils, so no knowing what kinds of elements are mixed in those to add to the chemical soup that would be in the dump. Um, and the dust that would be produced by that also then aggravating respiratory illnesses as well, um, and obviously the noise on anybody who's on either the proposed route or a route that's used by trucks if there's ever an accident on the road. And you know better than I do that daily there are accidents on the road that cause people to bypass things on roads that weren't intended for that amount of traffic. So we have serious um, concerns, really, with everything there is on the planet. So our land, our air, and our water. Um, so those are big concerns for us. And we extend that concern to people who live downriver, um, because any leachate, which is like the chemical soup that would build up in the dump, would then be pumped into the Thames River and head downstream um, through London and through other communities that are drinking water um, from around or under the, the Thames River. There's also a concern, too. I mean, this is, I mean, something, you know, that the community obviously has, as you've articulated, you know, opposition to, but it's not really something that can be just decided by the community this is more provincial than it is local in terms of yeah, as I said currently the law is such that this goes to the the Ministry of the Environment who runs a process for environmental assessments and the minister makes some decision on the recommendation of his staff or um, for some other reasons um, and the community has a say 
um, but not the say. Um, and we're really pushing, and there's quite a strong movement among rural communities, 72 of them have signed on to this demand the right thing, saying we should have the say in this. Um, is this something we want or not? If a community is unwilling, the answer is no. If a community is willing, then the answer is yes, they're prepared to deal with the consequences. In my mind, any community that would say yes to a garbage dump is somewhat out of their mind um, because the consequences are catastrophic and you only need to look at um, the English River Wabagoon with the mercury poisoning in it or at the area around Richmond, Ontario, where they have a website called Leaky Land on which the ministry admits that the dump is leaking through the kind of liner that they approved. Do you feel as though some of your concerns have been listened to? Um, there was a promise during the election campaign, don't get cynical on me now, um, by um, Doug Ford, and he said, and I'm quoting him, that landfill should not be rammed down the throats of communities. So he'd obviously heard about this issue. He'd heard, obviously, about our particular instance of it. Um, and we really would like for... Uh, him and his Minister of the Environment, who did insert something about landfills into an environmental statement he made just before Christmas. We'd really like them to act. So have we been listened to? Yes, we've heard them use the word landfill, um, but we haven't seen legislation and regulation. And if you don't have those things, that doesn't mean things are happening yet. There was a survey that uh, recently went out which would suggest that, you know, the company involved here would be interested uh, in, in feedback from the community, although I know there have been concerns about the survey itself as well. So, yes, it's one of four surveys they've done. Um, I wonder um, why you would need to do sur- four surveys. It's uh, sort of overkill. They did a survey with members of the public by phone. Um, they did a survey with community groups, um, also by phone. And they did a survey with... Um, businesses, which they did um, in print and by visiting them to um, hold the pen in people's hands. I'm not quite sure what they're planning to do because most business owners I know in the community are quite capable of answering questions. And now they've got this one that's a bit of a mismatch. Um, It asks questions of people as residents. It then asks some questions about um, owners of business, and it asks some questions about people about their farms. Um, And so far, I haven't found a lot of people living in downtown Ingersoll where these have been delivered who own farms in downtown Ingersoll. (laughs) Um, So I'm a bit confused about their circulation. Um, um, They might be able to clarify that, but they don't necessarily call me up and say, hey, Brian, what are we doing about this? Um, So um, not sure about that. And some concerns about the questions. Uh, There's an awful lot of personal information being asked for in terms of your revenues and that sort of stuff that people are objecting to and are um, noting that either in Facebook postings or when they call me and they continue to do so. Um, And there's concerns about some of the questions being quite leading um, and making certain assumptions, either offering a few multiple-choice answers, none of which people would like, or assuming that the dump is going to happen, and therefore what will people do when the dump happens? Well, it's not a question of when the dump is going to happen. Our community is opposed to it, and we think it should not happen. The Canada Post slowdown we had, does that impact the survey and the ability of the community to provide feedback so that it's not rushed and just maybe received and then cast aside? Um. No, it escaped the, the slowdown because it came by letter mail and it, and it um, started landing um, a fair while after Canada Post had said that all of the letter mail backlog was cleared up. 
Um, but it came um, to many residents, according to what people have been telling me, as of Friday with a due date of the 4th of January. Well, you understand that between that is um, New Year's Eve, um, and not everybody's attention would necessarily be to a survey in the mail, nor would postal workers be working on New Year's Day. Um, so that means there's less time to move the survey from person to person. But I should tell you about one particularly notable festive New Year's Eve party where someone told me that he and multiple of his neighbors were going to get together and on New Year's Eve do the survey so they could mail them the next day. At this point, uh, are you feeling confident uh, that uh, you know concerns will be listened to and uh, this may not go through? Or, or, or what, what would you put the percentage at at this point? So in, in terms of my confidence that this would not happen, I remain strongly optimistic. I remain that strongly optimistic for a number of reasons. One, as I previously said, it would seem that the government has heard us, and that doesn't surprise me because they've received over 113,000 letters from this community and people in other parts of Ontario in solidarity with with us. Um, Many of the people who've asked me what to do with this um, survey that then goes to a company that's been hired by Walker, who's the dump folk. Um, many people have asked me about, you know, how they should answer it and what should they do and should they answer it at all. I said, go ahead and answer it. Answer only the questions you're comfortable with. But maybe what you need to do is express your concerns about both the survey and the dump itself directly to the government as well. So I know that a number of people have said that they are going to email or phone or write the Minister of the Environment and say, this is an environmental disaster in the making um, and you should be stopping it. We will follow this with interest. Uh, Brian Smith, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Devin, thank you very much, and um, drink water while you still can. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye now. That's Brian Smith, president of Citizens Group Opal, Oxford People Against the Landfill. We need to pause. When we return, more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for uh, Mike Stubbs. There have been a lot of stories recently about people calling 911 when they shouldn't be. Now, on the one hand, that we get those stories a lot at this time of year, but it just seems like there's more than usual this year. I mean, usually OPP and local police forces will give out their you know list of uh, the silliest, dumbest, craziest, stupidest, you name it, uh, 911 calls. But after they did that, they've had to have other reminders go out, which is, to me, unusual. I haven't seen that too many times in the past. And you just wonder what goes through people's heads sometimes. Norfolk OPP uh, sent out a reminder <laughs> about the importance of 911 only being used for emergencies after they got a call one day at around 1 a.m. from a woman who had locked her keys and cell phone in a nearby office. They got a call from a 21-year-old guy who called 911 because he was lost, needed help finding his parents' house. Officers, to their credit, helped him find his way home. Got another call from a 47-year-old guy who called 911 because two men had teased him while he was walking down the street, wanted the police to talk to them. In the end, he got charged for with two counts of failing to comply with a probation order. So uh, good job to him. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous, some of the things people call 911 for. Chatham-Kent Police... A little while ago, released their uh, top 10 silly calls. 
One was a man went into his garage, noticed his uh, gun locker had been pried open and several guns were missing. After calling police, he noticed a man walking around, walking away from his house wearing his coat. Caller got into his car, drove towards the man who then flagged him down for a ride. And so they arrested the guy <laughs> uh, who was in, in the coat and his firearms. They had a call in this in Chatham County again. Caller advised police a stranger came to his door explaining he was out for a walk and asked if he could use the man's microwave to heat up the food he was carrying. Got another call. This, these are all 911 calls. Who has several dealings with police. He attended the courthouse where he'd also been numerous times and gone through security screening. This time he forgot to check his backpack before officers did. Inside were a uh, check stolen during a recent commercial break and enter. There was one where a, a suspicious man was seen going door to door on a residential street trying uh, door handles at 2.30 in the morning at one particular house. He was started when the home opener opened the door, claimed he needed a can opener, but he forgot the can. I mean, you can call the cops for something like that, clearly trying to break into homes, maybe not 911. Police were called about a suspicious person loitering around a business in Chatham, asking passers-by for cigarettes. They were wearing a dark coat and had a scarf across their face and asked to identify themselves. The uh, high-pitched voice provided a female's uh, name. They had stuffed their coat to appear to be a woman, but when <laughs> the scarf was removed, a thick, bushy mustache was revealed. Man, known to police, he uh, had a corner-pointed uh, curfew that he was out beyond and got in trouble. I mean, it's these are, you know, police cases. I just don't know if some of these are 911 calls. The silliest call for 2018 police had, it's not necessarily a 911 call, I guess, was a business owner arrived to work to find a naked person inside. Police were called, and after viewing the surveillance video, they uh, learned what had happened. Turned out the man was initially clothed when he entered an insecure door, waited patiently in the front of the office to uh, be uh, attended to. Waited for 20 minutes. When he got no service, he went to the bar, engaged in an animated conversation with a non-existent bartender and ate appetizers from a non-existent plate. Man was then seen engaging in an interpretive chicken dance. This is all caught on the security cameras, uh, during which he uh, stripped down to his birthday suit. So I guess those weren't actually 911 calls, just calls in general. But you got to just... Use common sense when calling 911. We, we last year, went over uh, some of the crazier calls with, you know, kids calling 911 about uh, having to clean their room and whatnot. Common sense, not always common. We need to pause when we come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL.
Just enough time to set up the second hour of the program. We'll talk about uh, carding. Uh, just as Michael Tullock spoke earlier today, uh, expanding upon his uh, review that uh, came out a couple of days ago on uh, carding, we'll play a few highlights from that. We'll talk about uh, the Louis C.K. controversy that erupted around New Year's, and we'll end the program with a little mini roundtable. We'll have some predictions for 2019. Roger Crancy and Nathan Crancy. Both will be in uh, to give their predictions uh, for 2019. That and a whole lot more in the second hour of the program. This is London Live and Devin Peacock and for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We are into the second hour of the program. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike will be back on Monday. I want to spend a few minutes talking about carding since we discussed it earlier this week. And Justice Michael Tullock spoke about his recently released review earlier today. His report this week said carding has little to no value as a law enforcement tool and should be significantly limited in the province. The report does allow that police may have legitimate grounds to conduct street checks in certain circumstances but notes that these are very specific and the practice as a whole should be sharply curtailed. He spoke for a while earlier today, but here are a couple of the highlights. First off, he gave his definition of a street check and of carding. During the course of the review, it became apparent to me that there were many misunderstandings and misconceptions regarding the regulation, which I believe I must address. First, people are using the terms carding in street checks interchangeably. They're debating the relative merits of those practices without a common understanding as to what those terms mean. I believe that there is a difference between what are called street checks and what has commonly been referred to as carding. Police services use the term street checks to refer to any information obtained while an officer is out in the community obtaining information. For example, if an officer fills out an observation report that they saw someone doing something at a particular location, it is qualified as a street check, even though no identifying information was requested or obtained from that person. As a result, the first thing that had to be done was to define key terms. For the purpose of the report, a street check is limited to situations where identifying information is obtained by a police officer concerning an individual outside of a police station that is not part of an investigation. Carden is defined to be a situation in which a police officer randomly asks an individual to provide identifying information when there is no objectively suspicious activity. The individual is not suspected of any offense and there's no reason to believe that the individual has any information about any offense. That information is then recorded and stored in a police intelligence database. Cardin therefore is a small subset of street checks. Tulloch also gave his definition of what should qualify suspicious activity for the situations where street checks and carding is necessary. A point of concern often is, is often raised, and I saw throughout my consultation 
was that suspicious activities can be interpreted very broadly. What one person finds suspicious, another might not. And such a broad category could result in indiscriminate stops being made. For this reason, I have recommended that when police officers are requesting identifying information because they're inquiring into suspicious activities or general criminal activities, they must have objective and credible grounds to justify these inquiries. At this point, I'd ask you to please read the actual report. We've got copies in this room for all of you. And I think it's, you know, you can't really understand any of these recommendations without understanding the context. The context is important. And I think it's the lack of context that has caused all this confusion and has caused us to be in the state that we're in. So I, I really encourage you to not just listen to my, my commentaries today, not just read uh, the various um, newspaper articles, but please read the entirety of the report. I think it's critically important for all of us so that we're all aware of what our obligations are as, as citizens and what our civil liberties are. And here he gives one reason why he doesn't believe carding is a valuable enforcement tool. But we have to look at the objective data. <laughs> Significantly, Statistics Canada has reported that in 2017, the first year that the regulation was in force, Ontario had the second largest decline in homicides among the provinces in Canada, which was largely attributed to guns and gangs. I think this is important to emphasize. The year the regulation came out, homicides in Ontario actually went down. The link between violence and street checks is also a spurious one because it compares apples to oranges. The general argument is that street checks have drastically declined post-regulation and therefore any increase in violence is linked to that decrease. And again, the definition, of course, when these articles or, or when these arguments are being made, it still mixes in what I would say card in and, and, and proper street checks, right? So there is not that distinction. So the argument goes on, right? That there's this straight line correlation. This ignores the fact that prior to the regulation, police used the term street checks as an umbrella term that included many interactions that are not regulated and not considered street checks under the new regime. Before the regulation, street checks could include, as I've indicated, observations an officer made without talking to people, or information obtained in speaking to someone not including identifying information. A reduction in the number of interactions that qualifies street checks would not impact the crime rate. 
So that's just a portion of what was discussed today. Tullock spoke for so long, there's no way I could play all of the audio. But if you have a chance, uh, it's worth watching because you give some detail or you can read the report itself because it gives all the detail you could need. It's uh, a very interesting topic. We need to pause when we return more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. Mike will be. I want to spend some time talking about uh, Louis C.K. in light of the latest comedy set he did that has caused uh, quite a bit of controversy. It's uh, Devin Peacock filling in for Mike Stubbs. Mike will be back with you on Monday. In case you missed it, Louis C.K. did a 48-minute set at the Governor's Comedy Club in Long Island, New York. This was back in mid-December. Someone recorded it. They put it online two weeks later, and the contents have upset quite a number of people. He upset people with his jokes about gender identity and the Parkland school shooting, called the Survivors Boring. This was a quote from uh, the, uh, the recording. Quote, you're not interesting because you went to a high school where kids got shot. Why does that mean I have to listen to you? How does that make you interesting? You didn't get shot. You pushed some fat kid in the way. Now I got to listen to you talking. He also targeted the LGBTQ community. He specifically focused on the transgender terminology and pronouns. Again, I'm quoting from him. He said, they tell you what to call them. You should address them as they, them, because identify as gender neutral. And then his joke was, you should address me as there because I identify as location. The location is your mother's da 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 So in the remainder of the recording, which did not capture the whole set, CK also riffed on penis size and mentally handicapped people. He also called his own doctor a derogatory term for gay people. So when I first saw the story and I read about it, I was aghast. Uh, But I think when you're talking about something someone has said, it is important to hear them say it. So I listened to the 48-minute recording that was put online because I wanted to hear the context in which these jokes were made. I'll say this, hearing it and reading it are two different things. I'll also say up front, I don't think the jokes were funny, but they make more sense in the context of his comedy set, if that makes any sense. I'm going to play you some of the audio. I removed the profanity with edits and censors because I think context is important. And I'm not playing the audio so you can like or dislike what's said. I'm going to play it so you can be more informed when talking about this with others because what I want to talk about here really is not Louis C.K. specifically, but us as people just being more informed when we talk about things that are controversial. I listened to the audio because I was genuinely curious how gender terminology and the Parkland shooting can even come up. Now, it came up because he was talking about how he's been divorced for nine years and does not regret it. His marriage was not working, and now he's happier divorced than married. That led him to talk about his daughters, who are now 13 and 16 years old. His 13-year-old recently told him, according to the bit, that she thinks stand-up comedy is stupid, and he talked about how he doesn't know if his 16-year-old is doing drugs. He's not worried about her doing drugs, because if she is and he doesn't think she is, he's not worried because she's a smart girl, carries herself well. So that's why he's not worried. This is all part of his bit. 
But that led him to talk about how kids today are more mature than when he was their age. And the bit was about how they should be getting into trouble, not telling the world how they want to be called and lecturing us all. That's the premise under which the jokes about gender terminology and the Parkland shooting came up. Here's the bit. It's two minutes long. You should address me. They're like royalty. They tell you what to call them. You should address me as they, them. Because I identify as gender neutral. Oh, okay. Okay. You should address me as there. Because I identify as a location. And the location is... It doesn't have to be that nasty. But it can be. I don't know, they testify in front of Congress, these kids. What are you doing? You're young, you should be crazy. You should be unhinged. Not in a suit saying, I'm here to tell people. You're not interesting. Because you went to a high school where kids got shot? Why does that mean I have to listen to you? How does that make you interesting? You didn't get shot, you pushed some fat kid in the way. Now I gotta listen to you talking? Everybody gets upset when there's a shooting at a high school. I don't really see why it's any worse than anybody else dying. I don't. Because a lot of people die. Every day, 7,500 people die in America, okay? So that day, 17 kids got shot in a school. What about the other 7,500 people? They didn't die in their sleep. Some of them got electrocuted by their parents. (laughs) People get upset because they're young, right? They died so young. That's offensive to me. Because I, what, if I die now? <laughs> Everybody's gonna die. Why is it worse? I mean, old people die. Nobody gives a f-. You know, like when you tell somebody my grandmother died, they're like, oh, how old was she? She was 98. <laughs> Why'd you even tell me? <laughs> I think context is important. The comments make more quote unquote sense in terms of how they came about, but I still don't think they're funny. I'll say this. I think it's possible to make a joke about school shootings and gender terminology. I think it's possible to make a joke about just about anything. However, that doesn't mean just because you call it a joke, it's funny, or that you should make it. I will note, as you heard a bit in the clip, but also if you listen to the entire recording, the crowd cheered him on. They cheered him when he came on the stage. They cheered him throughout the entire set. They cheered him when the set ended. What I also took from listening to his 48-minute set that was recorded anyway was Louis C.K. seems to be an angry person. I was a fan of his, not anymore. I used to be. But fans of his, either past or present, know that his humor has always touched upon sensitive subjects, but it never, at least to me anyway, seemed angry. The set I listened to included more profanity that I remember him using and just had more of an angrier tone. The reaction to all of this was typical. You had one camp that was offended, saw this as further reason why Louis C.K. should be banished from the public eye. You had another camp that think those upset are snowflakes, and if you don't like it, you shouldn't go to his show. He's a comedian. I am not in either camp. First off, for the people who are upset about 
people who are upset. The whole point of comedy is the crowd gets to decide whether they like something or someone or not. The crowd decides whether a comedian is funny or not. And 99.999999% of the people commenting on his set didn't go to that one in mid-December because it was a smaller club and it was recorded without his knowledge and put online. So it was not as though these people went and knew what they were getting into. Secondly, just because you're offended doesn't mean everyone else has to be. You can take offense with something or someone and speak out about it. In fact, I would encourage more people to do that. But the rest of the world doesn't have to fall in line. It shouldn't be you have to go along with the crowd just because. Uh, Louis C.K. put on his surprise shows in August, October, and November at the uh, Comedy Center Club in New York. This was before the December show, of course, got both criticism and praise. If you listen to the recording from December, the crowd certainly seemed to like what they heard. So my wish for 2019 is people stop worrying what others think. If you don't think Louis C.K. is funny, continue on. If you think he's funny, continue on. At the end of the day, the market will decide whether it still wants to hear from him. I do think it's important to listen to the context in which something is said, not just in this case, but in all cases, because it can change how you view an issue. I think that's crucially important uh, for everything, but also in comedic matters, because when you write out or try to explain a comedy bit, it never hits you the same as when you hear it. I can tell somebody a joke, but if you hear the joke that's said, it comes across differently. Louis C.K. also made a joke about killing his father. When you hear me say that, it doesn't sound so funny. When you hear the bit, sounds kind of funny. My wish for 2019 is people are better informed before they comment on something. Maybe that's asking too much. I'll end with this. I'm going to play another portion from his set that wasn't reported on. This is a minute 30 of him talking about how he's lost a lot of money because of his actions. And it's a bit about how it's really not all that fun to find out who your real friends are. I had so much money. I bought a gold watch last year. And now I see it, and I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I ever saw. <laughs> what kind of an idiot? I should have a golden watch. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yes, pure gold. I should have one. And you can't sell a gold watch. You can't, because they know you're f- you have no leverage. You can't. Like, no, I'm still rich. I just uh, feel like selling it. Yeah. yeah, I'll give you eight dollars. I'll take it. I'll take eight dollars. <laughs> you know, people tell you that when you get in trouble, uh, you find out who your real friends are, and it turns out it's black people. That's what you can uh, count on. But. Uh, it's true, it's a true thing. And when you get in trouble, you find out who your real friends are. But people say that, like, it's a good thing. You find out who your... That's not a good thing, that's a horrible experience. Who the fuck wants to know who your real friends are? I liked having a bunch of fake friends and not knowing who was who. It's a terrible thing. You're like, that's my real... Fr- oh, f- That's my real friend? That's not the one I would have picked at all. (laughs) I'm with you. Oh, thanks a lot. That's great. If I were Louis C.K., I'd be doing more of that. Do an entire hour where you make fun of yourself. C.K. started off his sit by discussing what a tough year he's had ever since multiple women came forward with stories of him masturbating in front of them or asking for their permission to do so. 
so he can confirm the veracity of the claims in November in New York Times. This is back in 2016. So none of this is up for debate. He apologized at the time, but the apology only came after he denied the claims for a long time, and since then has done nothing to show any contrition. I hope he does. I want him to, not because I'm a former fan and would like to be again, but because the Me Too movement will mean so much more if those who have done wrong recognize that, truly recognize it, and then change for the better. We should want everyone to change in a positive way. The world is so angry these days, it seems like that trend is going to continue. So I wish that were not the case. I don't think Louis C.K. is going to be an example for change, but I hope it happens in some fashion. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Welcome back, everyone. We're into the final 30 minutes of the show. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike will be back on Monday. Going to end the program today with a little mini uh, Friday roundtable with uh, predictions for 2019. And so it's a mini roundtable, but I'm going to call this uh, Ringing in the New Year with the currencies. Wow. Hey, I, I got to tell you, there is, and this, in all honesty and sincerity, there is no place, no place. I would rather be on a sunny Friday afternoon <laughs> than in this studio with you and my son. It's yeah. uh, Believe me, there's no place. What is it, six degrees? Oh, I haven't seen the temperature six lately. Degrees, six sunny, degrees, sunny, gorgeous, yeah. just, you know, walk down the street, smile at your neighbor type, just beautiful out there. So. Well, you, you know, you, you do get a stipend for this. It's we, uh, Oh, yes. Your yes, stipend sorry. is- Waiting uh, for, I think, I'm waiting, the big bonus this my, year, too. My, we had the raise, Nathan. The raise, yeah. don't forget. Worst the banquet. Raise. You, got, and, you got 100% raise this uh, year. We did. We did. We heard <laughs> that. And by the way, I just have to, two really th- quick things. Shout out to- a good friend of ours, John, who we spent a big night last night debating a lot of things we probably are going to talk about today. Right. And I just want to let Noor know that I will not choke today. I promise. Great. Excellent. Okay. Glad we got that out of the way, okay. but uh, I echo those sentiments. And to be clear, they get paid zero dollars. So when it's a hundred percent- to tell people? Well, I just, you know. Why? Your, your, your stipend is my friendship. I, no, but I have, I, <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Sorry, I shouldn't have laughed. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I should, uh, I, I gave the last names with Nathan Crancy, Roger Crancy in studio with us today. Just some general predictions for 2019. Uh, we only have 30 minutes and time's going to go by quickly. We'll start locally. We'll build up. Um, I want to start with uh, BRT. It's, we're not going to see too much movement on this for a couple months, I think, just based on the, the schedule of everything, but... For a prediction for 2019, do we think the BRT plan, as it is, as we currently know it, will be approved and will move forward to the construction stage? Uh, not as it's been approved by the previous council. Uh, we had an election. We went through that. There are many members, new members of council who uh, ran on the platform of being against BRT, uh, not being against uh, public transportation, but... Uh, wanting a better plan to be put in place. And I think that that's where this council has to go. They've got to listen to the electorate who uh, who spend a lot of time on this. This was the number one issue, I'm sure, uh, that everybody can agree to that uh, for this past election. So they have to change it. Um, and whatever that change means, it I, you know, I don't know if it'll totally be, sc- be totally scrapped, uh, but there are some very, very contentious things about it that I think should not go forward. Uh, but uh, obviously we'd like to see better transportation in the city of London. That's what I think most of the uh, council members uh, said they wanted to do. So I, I think the first thing we have to do is kind of look at the cards we've been dealt. And the cards we've been dealt are the new council uh, that's in place. Um, and that's what, it, that's what it reminds me of. Uh, 
we get, I think, now it's two votes. You get a vote for a councilor and a mayor, and you, the rest of the city council is kind of picked by other. It used to be that there was a board of control, and you oh, had a little we bit more control. Oh, are we going to go there? No, but, go there. but <laughs> the point is we have to kind of look at the hint we're dealt now. Uh, it's very clear. People voted. There were three of the four mayoral candidates that were very clear in their opposition to BRT. One of them won, and about between 70 and 80 percent, closer to 80 percent of Londoners voting for a mayor, uh, voted for a mayor that uh, was against BRT. So that's pretty plan. That's a pretty clear mandate. This current uh, plan, like um, th- yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know they had the differences in their uh, views. Uh, the mayoral candidates did. However, at the end of the day, they were against the current plan. So let's look at the council that's around them. It seems to me that there are. It's a pretty even split. This really could go either way. The first signal to me was that Ed Holder decided to um, appoint the most pro BRT. Uh, uh, counselor as his deputy mayor, which could go one in a, a you know how I feel about that. Yep. I'm not sure um, where the logic is on that, but in any case, if it's an effort to build bridges, we'll see what happens. I do not think that this current plan uh, will be passed in its current form. The, the, um, the question will be to what extent is it altered? Are they going to change just a couple things around the corners and call it, you know, brand it something brand new and say, hey, guess what? It's a brand new plan. Or are they going to make fundamental uh, uh, changes. What I look to is dedicated lanes. If they address that issue, if we keep the dedicated lanes, then it really is a very similar plan. If they modify that a lot, then it's a modified plan that will pass. So when we look at potentially, and I would agree with, you know, prediction that I, I don't think this current plan is going through, then the next question for me then is, is that because there isn't funding from the province and the feds for this, or is it because this council itself, it doesn't even get to the province and the feds. So, so the province to re-up what the liberals had previously said, and for the federal liberals to say, you know, we, we've set aside this money, now you can direct it towards rapid transit. Is it because council itself says we're going to take a step back and rethink this, or is it because the, uh, the other two levels just say no? You know, the other two levels monitor the city uh, functions, the city uh, um, the thoughts in the city of London very closely. And I, th- I think that uh, the members of provincial parliament, the federal uh, MPs in the city of London know uh, what the message was during the past election. Uh, they're not going to give a blank check. They're going to talk to their uh, um, the, the, the people who, who write the checks. They're going to talk to the various ministries where that money is going to come from. And they will let them know. And, and that's what they do. Uh, in my experience on council, if there wasn't uh, agreement from the council to come forward, again, I'll, the, I'll use an infrastructure project, uh, the, the old Hale Trafalgar overpass, and that was a fight for nine years. Uh, if the, the, when the province always said, is council on side with this? And it took a very long time to get council there. But when council did come on side, obviously the money was there for, from right. the, uh, the province and the feds for that uh, particular project. If there, there is no um, uh, appetite in the city of which there wasn't for this particular plan, the money won't be there. And I don't care what anybody will say to me. It won't. They're not going to give the money to the city to spend on something the people of London don't want. And yeah, that's the, the reality. The, just to build on that, I think the point is the federal and provincial governments want to give this money. They really do. In fact, one of the major criticisms that the federal liberals are taking right now is that they put all this money aside for infrastructure countrywide, nationwide. And it's just not going out the door quick enough. And part of the reason is because places they want to invest it, like London, cannot come to the federal government or have not yet with a plan that is supported by the masses, by the city. They do not want to invest that. They want to invest the money, but not if the majority of people in London don't want the money. That's just counterproductive for everybody. 
So I think that really when you look at the scale of this project, it is not as uh, – even if it was you know super um, expensive, it's not within the realm of the major, major projects that the federal and provincial governments invest in regularly across uh, the province and country. So what they want is for – city council to come to them with a plan that is supported by the masses very clearly so that they can cut their ribbons, they can give their speeches and say, here's all the money. Um, I'm not as afraid that Doug, I know some people are suggesting, you know, Doug Ford and the uh, progressive conservatives don't want to give the money. I I think that they do. I think they really do want to invest. And um, we'll just see if if the city council can muster the support for a plan. I I think they just want, the various levels want a well thought out plan and something that's uh, that's supported by the people that uh, in the city of London. So that's what they're waiting for. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of our predictions for 2019. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live, uh, doing some predictions for 2019 uh, to end uh, the show today and end the week, joined by Nathan Crancy and Roger Crancy. I want to move federally. Uh, we, uh, and I'm, I, I don't want to give, like, I'm going to ask about the federal election, which is still months and months away. I do not want to spend like months and months and months talking about the federal election, even though I just know that's going to happen. Oh, of course. And and yet I'm at, so I'm 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 doing the very thing that you don't want to do. That's going to annoy me. Well, but how the, how the these are predictions for 2019. How the Blue Jays going to do this? Year? <laughs> uh, they're going to lose, but Vladimir Guerrero is going to. He's going to be. That's right. Uh, you know what? Same but thing also, anyway. Blue Jays fans, I, you know, uh, he's going to come up like three weeks into the season. They get to keep him for an extra year. So stop complaining that he's he's not going to make the team out of spring training. That's a guarantee. But they get to keep him for an extra year of control. He's going to crush. It'll be fine. Boom. Wonderful. All right. Now you're Good happy to enough to talk about the federal election. Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> so this, this is also a prediction uh, for right. 2019. So that's that's where I, uh, I give myself a pass. Uh, who do we think <laughs> is going to win the federal election this year? So I'll, I'll couple that with uh, the other topic we were going to talk about, kind of the local issues here. Um, I think right now, if you had to look, again, if the election was tomorrow, and it's not, you'd probably have to say that uh, the federal liberals are likely to win. Uh, however, I think that um, London, uh, interestingly enough, will be a very uh, good case study for what happens uh, um, nationwide. And what I mean by that is the opposition to Trudeau, the only real opposition, I think, nationwide is the is the conservatives, just based on what the NDP has done or failed to do. Or not done. Exactly. And um, what the conservatives are doing very clearly is, uh, and I speak as a conservative myself, they're going to hammer home this carbon tax message, going to hammer home building pipelines, and then they're going to build a narrative based off of those uh, issues. How, what those issues mean for everything in general. More pipelines means more money for healthcare, means more money for this, means more jobs for people, et cetera, et cetera. Carbon tax means less money for the. That's what they're going to try and build. And when you look at places like, and I'll say East London, London Fanshawe, where Irene Matheson is now, um, that's a place where there's somebody there, an incumbent, who kind of has a this persona that she's untouchable. She's not running, but her daughter is, um, even though she only won by 3,000 votes last election. Interesting. So let's consider uh, if hypothetically a strong conservative comes in there, says, I'm against the carbon tax. And you got a lot of people in this riding are very anxious based on the general dynamic situation. Instead of canceling this general dynamics deal, let's start with building these pipelines and confronting Saudi Arabia economically first. Let's get our house in order before we look elsewhere. I think that message, when you look at the demographics and the type of blue collar 
people that live in East London, um, you know, maybe a little bit more prone to populism than, say, kind of the, uh, you know, center of the city. That is where conservatives are going to be looking to make gains because you can mimic that across the country in certain areas with those uh, issues. So if that if it works, um, you know, you'll see a place like London Fanshawe go blue and the rest of the country do it. If it doesn't work, then, you know, you won't. You'll probably see a Trudeau victory again. You know, there, there's uh, the the other parties obviously look at uh, pointing out the uh, uh, the problems, the uh, the warts of the party in in charge right now, and that's that's normal. That's what happens. But these parties do have their own problems, and and you you see the NDP and what's happening with them. I mean, uh, they they don't even know whether uh, their leader will will win a seat in the upcoming uh, by election that he's going to be running in. And um, with what's happening there, the collapse of the NDP and people jumping ship, you've got people that are not running anymore, people that are running for provincial elections rather than um, sticking around. Right. Uh, there's a big problem there. Uh, I read an article yesterday where this party is $10 million in debt from the last election. Uh, they've only, uh, they only brought in $150,000 this past December, in, uh, which is way, way low for, uh, for a party such as that. Uh, but their leader is not uh, what people believe, uh, they, they don't, they be. don't, they don't believe in, in him and right. what he's bringing forward so far. He, you know, it seems like a nice guy, but, uh, he just hasn't been able to connect with, uh, with the voters. So, uh, you know, with the collapse of the NDP vote, if that happens, I think we all know where that vote ends up going. Uh, it goes to the Liberals. So it's a, it's a very, uh, it, it, I think it'll be another win for, uh, uh for, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, I don't know if it'll be as big as it was the last time around uh, because they have made mistakes and um, uh, those mistakes uh, people won't forget. Uh, but uh, I think at the end of the day, he'll still be standing. I always say normally there's uh, there's two terms uh, for any new prime minister that comes in. Uh, usually got a life of, uh, of two terms and then anything happens. So I think he's, uh, he's still able to, uh, to get this. One. I agree with most of that. I, uh, sorry. Re- just real quick, because we're running. Yeah, sorry. Time. I agree with most of that. I think that it's, um, it would be an unwise decision for the liberals to just assume that the NDP, uh, voters of the past come over to the liberals. I think in certain places it may potentially go to the conservatives in those more blue collar, potentially populist areas in others, more wealthy areas, the NDP voter might go to the liberals as well. We've got uh, two minutes before we need to uh, wrap up our mini roundtable. So we'll end with uh, with Donald Trump. That's because <laughs> why not? Let's do it. Uh, will he still be president by 2020? So is the question, is he going to get reelected or is he still going to be president? So by the time January 1st, 2020 arrives, because it's 2019, so that's, his right. term will still be on. Will he still be president January 1st, 2020? I think he will be president until he is voted out of until the next Democrat. I think the Democrats will win the presidency. Uh, I would agree. I, I don't. I just don't think he's going to be. So basically, do you think he's going to be impeached or step down? Is, I don't. I don't think he's going to be impeached. I, I don't think they're going to impeach him just to impeach him. Although there's so much there that uh, they could go after, uh, and I think you've got some very uh, knowledgeable people that have just come into power. As much as people may not like Nancy Pelosi, uh, she's a very smart lady, and yep. she's one who's you know she's hedging her bets on it. But I think she wants to go, uh, she wants to concentrate on governing rather than uh, going well, after Mr. Trump. There's a lot there, but I mean it's it's a it's difficult for the Democrats. Like there's a lot there, but to reach the level of impeachment in terms of like legally it happening, yep. but also the senators voting for it and right. that whole process, I don't think the liberals can just you know say you know impeach 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 because then your case looks weaker right. when you don't have it all set up. I've so, said I this. Mean, I've said this for over since he was elected. They're set. They've set the bar too high. 
because now the only bar Trump has to jump over or, or get under is uh, not being or not colluding with Russia, is that he colluded with Russia. Now, there's a million different things you could do that are impeachable offenses, that are bad things, that are things that don't are that are unworthy of reelection, that are less significant than colluding with a foreign adversary. But for some reason that a lot of people put all their eggs in that basket. And it's very possible, and I dare say likely, that he, the man, the president, did not collude with Russia. And he will get to spin it and say, hey, guess what? I'm cleared. Mueller cleared me. And that set the bar way too high. You look at the the populism everywhere in the United States, but on the left from the Democrats, that is their populist message that needs to be refocused. Their populist message is impeach him, impeach him, impeach him. Well, guess what? It's not so easy. Like it's supposed to not be easy. It's supposed to be a high bar. And, um, you know, you you see the ones that are really capable of the job, like Nancy Pelosi, not focusing on impeachment. They're focusing on governing. In fact, they're trying to appropriate some of the messages that the liberals were very successful with um, in Canada, which is a great, that's the blueprint for victory if you're a left of center party. but they need really to focus on that and not go too far into the impeachment weeds. We need to end it there. The mini roundtables go quickly. Thanks to you both for coming in today. We'll break. We come back. We'll have the audio gem and we'll wrap up the program. This is uh, London Live and Devon in for Mike on 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike. Uh, Mike will be back on Monday. My thanks to uh, Dr. Gordon Ozinski, Brian Patterson, Brian Smith, Roger Crancy, and Nathan Crancy for coming on the show today. Thanks to uh, Andrew Graham for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is a clip from a newscast in the U.S. This is where a couple of news anchors had a laugh over a story about a good Samaritan tried to save what he thought was someone hanging from the roof of a house. In reality, it was an elaborate uh, Christmas decoration. And the entire situation was caught on security camera. They uh, laughed throughout the entire bit. Have a great day. Enjoy the weekend. Mike will be back with you on Monday at 1 o'clock. A family's Christmas decorations nearly caused one man a heart attack. Listen, please hold on. All right. Can you reach it? Can you reach it? The man in Austin, Texas thought (laughs) this dummy was a real person. Nest Cam video shows the man rush over, <laughs> grab a ladder, and call for help. He even called Aww. 911. The family, and the family put up the dummy to pay homage to a, a, a Christmas scene from, uh, from a movie right there. The Griswolds, right? You know, Christmas vacation. And uh, they are trying to find the man to give him a gift because they say <laughs> it, his heart was in the right place. Now, he felt it. Oh, no. He, felt, he, said, he, said, he said, can you reach it? Can you reach it? It's got to be a good Samaritan there. It's making me cry, my goodness. <laughs> you, you want him around if you were stuck on the roof one day. Can you reach it? All right. Well, we are hoping to reach temperatures like we saw yesterday. It was nice and warm spring-like yesterday. Let's check in with meteorologist Karen Mitten in Severe Weather Center, too. Karen. This is great. I love it. Oh, we need more of that laughter. That's great. That guy was wonderful.